Welcome to Four Star Forum, an exclusive one-on-one series of conversations with men and women who've ascended to the highest rank possible today in the United States military. This is episode number two of Four Star Forum. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Each of the military services is working on or has released an Arctic strategy. The service with the greatest forward presence in the Arctic today is the Coast Guard. Admiral Paul Zukov, U.S. Coast Guard, retired, was the 25th Commandant of that service. He's here to discuss the strategic importance of that region and why you're probably hearing more about the Arctic now than you ever have before. Admiral, thanks very much for coming on the program. Welcome today. I guess the first question I have is what questions should we be asking as a nation about the Arctic? Yeah, I think first and foremost, uh, you know, why the Arctic? And, and so what you've seen in the uh, East-South China Sea, you've seen uh, Chinese region, what I'm calling regional hegemony. And when you look at the lines of operation from the U.S. to operate in the East-South China Sea, granted, we have bases overseas, um, but still, it's, it's a long line of communication to sustain any meaningful presence uh, in the East-South China Sea. Well, it's no different in the Arctic. Um, and, and Russia de facto has established regional hegemony in the Arctic. Um, so we've always talked about the Arctic in terms of natural resources, oil, gas, rare earth minerals, fisheries, the Northern Sea Route, transit routes. There were three ballistic submarines, Russia ballistic submarines, that surfaced within a thousand yards of each other. Very well synchronized. They did it over Franz Joseph Archipelago um, in what would we, we would consider Russia's EEZ. Um, but they were very transparent about this to say, yes, uh, we can surface ballistic submarines, each one carrying 16 missiles, each missile carrying six MIRVs, which means 96 warheads could be launched just from one of those submarines alone. So it was a posture statement to say, we're in the Arctic. Russia has 46 icebreakers. Um, they have four nukes, three under construction. By 2035, they anticipate having somewhere in the neighborhood of 13, 14 heavy icebreakers, nine of which of those will be nuclear. So there you go, regional hegemony. And, and Russia has declared all the way up to the North Pole as their sovereign waters, their extended continental shelf, if you will. So meanwhile, back in the United States, we've been writing posture papers. Uh, we have been campaigning to recapitalize our ice-breaking fleet. Um, and, and quite honestly, we are now we are now 15 years behind glide slope. Um, if you can imagine all our aircraft carriers were timed out and we're just going to start building one today. Um, we're not there. Fortunately, we're on the bleeding edge in terms of aircraft carrier, carrier strike group technology. We're not there with icebreakers. The good news is, the first heavy icebreaker is is under construction at VT Halter Marine. Um, the timeline for that has lapsed. And so the extension for the Polar Star was a bridge until its replacement um, was delivered, went through sea trials, and is ready for operations. At best, the replacement will be delivered in 2024. Um, Conservatively, you add another 18 months to two years before it is ready for full-scale operations. So that takes you out to 2026, 2027. Um, what concerns me with the Polar Star is um, when I was a commandant of the Coast Guard, 
um, you know, they, they run a, a diesel electric uh, plant, which means they have uh, generators that, that drive shafts, that, which is very effective for ice breaking. Uh, well, one of those generators failed, and, and at the coupling, uh, they didn't have a replacement part. One of the crew members, big surfer, happened to have his surfboard repair kit on the ship, and they used the fiberglass repair kit to repair this coupling to keep the ship in operation down in Antarctica, where there is no relief. That We have nothing to send to, to get them out of there. And if not for this surfboard repair kit, you know, we would have been an extremist. I, I, I'm not making this stuff up. Um, similarly, it was in 2016, 2017, um, under the, no, no, actually it was before that. It was 2015 under the Obama administration um, and Ambassador Rice uh, inquired whether we could send the Polar Star through the Northern Sea Route to do a freedom of navigation exercise. I said, in all due respect, Ambassador, I can't guarantee that the ship could make a safe transit because there's a possibility it could have a catastrophic engineering casualty, and then we would have to call Russia to come to our rescue. So, you know, if we want to thumb our nose and all of a sudden say, help, help, um, I don't think that's a message we need to convey. All the more reason why we need to, you know, you know, really double down on the Arctic. So right after that, the Obama administration came out with the national strategy for the Arctic region. Um, it came out at the very tail end of the of the administration. Um, going into the Trump administration, towards the tail end, which was a one-term administration, um, there was a white paper that came out that that pretty much validated. All the studies we have done, it says, yes, we need to start purchasing icebreakers. Um, the good news is we've started. As I say, we're about 15 years behind timeline of where we need to be. Um, I'm going to be you know, skeptical. Um, and if I was a sitting commandant right now, whether you can get five more years out of the Polar Star. Um, because what's keeping it going right now is we're using the Polar Sea as its spare parts bin. And we've pretty much cannibalized what we would call high failure rate parts off the Polar Sea. And, and, and those product lines are no longer in existence. Um, there were new ships when I was coming out of the Coast Guard Academy. They're now over, well over 40 years old, which means I must be falling apart as well. Uh, I, I, I got some patchwork. I, I think I'm good for five more years. All you need is a uh, surfer kit and you'll be in good shape apparently. Um, yeah, the last time you and I talked, Admiral, was you were on Government Matters in uh, January of 2019, and you told that story about the FONOPS and the Northern Sea Route uh, that uh, Ms. Rice asked you about. And there's two things about that conversation that I want to ask you about. The first is you said something else in that conversation that I thought turned out to be particularly prescient. Russia's looking at this is the Suez Canal of the future, uh, even more shipping. Uh, is entertaining the idea of sending ships to the Northern Sea Route. Uh, it really cuts the uh, Asia to Europe market uh, transit time uh, by more than a third, and the savings there are, are pretty significant. In light of what we have experienced supply chain-wise with what happened in the Suez Canal, how should we think about that incident in the way that we think about the Arctic, both economically, uh, you know, commerce-wise, and strategically? 
First and foremost, the, the Northern Sea Route, it, it trims over 2,000 transit miles, nautical miles, um, between the Asia and European markets. Um, so one, it's, it's much less expensive. Uh, there's a cost for transiting the Suez Canal. Russia has stood up a Northern Sea Route administration that makes it compulsory to have a, a Russian ice pilot and a Russian icebreaker to provide escort services through the Northern Sea Route. Um, and so they claim this as their internal waters. Um, the United States would view this as an international strait um, and not internal waters to Russia. So we have a tension point right there in terms of what is the status of the Northern Sea Route. Um, Russia has already established a pattern. Um, China has transited ships through there, uh, some of these carrying uh, petroleum products. Um, and it's much more economical for them to do so. And yes, the Suez Canal, it, it's in a hot spot, figuratively and literally. And we saw, you know, what could happen, you know, if you disrupt that flow and say an adversary wants to sink a ship in the Suez Canal, then what? So this does provide resiliency. Um, there's estimates that as early as 2030 now, that there could be periods where the Arctic is ice free. Um, and certainly the, the pattern that we're seeing in the Arctic, which is warming about twice the rate as the warming rates in the low latitudes. Um, and as the ice melts, it absorbs more heat. There's less light, less ice in succeeding years, thin ice. Um, and, and so that pattern is already well underway. Um, and, and I interact a lot with uh, some of the most renowned climatologists. Um, and and even if we stop burning fossil fuel today, um, the Arctic is going to continue to warm. Uh, the, the ocean has been our heat sink, um, and, and it will stay warm for at least through 2050 if we stop burning fossil fuel today, which takes carbon dioxide, takes almost a century for that to completely metabolize. And we're still putting CO2 into the atmosphere. It is higher now than it's ever been in 2 million years. And there's a pattern when you have high CO2, you then have higher temperatures, and, and then you have a rising sea level. You have a rising sea level because the land-based ice, Greenland and Antarctica, melt. And that's happening right now as well. The other thing that we talked about in that uh, television conversation a couple of years back, Admiral, is I posed the hypothetical that if someone in the White House went to the CNO and said, we need to conduct FONOPS in South China Sea, and the chief of naval operations said, we don't have a a vessel that I'm confident can make it through without having the Chinese have to come rescue us, that people would lose their minds. And yet, I, my view was there was not a whole lot of coverage at that time of your comments about your experience. It doesn't seem like much has changed in the interim two years. It doesn't seem like people are paying much more attention to the equipment that we need and the presence that we need. They're talking about the region and the strategic importance of the region, but I don't get a sense that people are talking about accelerating the equipment that we need to have that presence there. Same question I asked you two years ago about the FONOPS. Am I missing something, Admiral? No, Francis, you are, you are spot on. And, and so, you know, post-Cold War, 
the United States was the global hegemon around the world. And there are very few countries, I doubt that even China could be a global hegemon. But what we are seeing now is, is regional hegemony. China and the East-South China Sea, and as I said earlier, Russia, the Arctic. And yes, Russia has the most coastline in the Arctic than any of the other Arctic nations. Um, so, so how do we get after this? Um, the United States can't do it alone. And so what we need to look at first and foremost is, you know, let's look at our allies. You know, let's look at, you know, Canada, uh, Denmark through Greenland, uh, you know, with uh, the kingdom having oversight of Greenland. Iceland, Norway, uh, you know, those are some of our key allies. And in Finland, not a member of NATO, um, but we do see opportunities to, to work with Finland in this domain as well. Um, and come up with a strategic framework. Uh, we have an Arctic Coast Guard form that was set up while I was coming out of the Coast Guard. Russia is a member of that as well. But what that mostly addressed were environmental issues. Um, safety of life at sea, search and rescue, environmental, if there's an oil spill in the Arctic. And so the Coast Guards of the Arctic nations say, yes, we can work together on these matters. Um, but what we're seeing is militarization of the Arctic. Um, Russia has 18 Arctic bases. Many of these are air bases um, in the Arctic region. If you look at Ellison Air Force Base, I guess we could say that's Arctic. Um, the U.S. has one. Russia has 18. Um, so we are at a significant disadvantage in terms of having any meaningful presence. So, so how do you close this gap? Um, our, our silent service, our, our naval submarines have been operating in, in this domain for, for decades. Um, but you can't do a FONOP with a ballistic submarine. In fact, it's counterintuitive. Um, we don't want adversaries to know where these strategic assets are located. Um, so right now, we, we have great narrative, and, and everyone reads this narrative, but they're looking at our shipyards, they're looking at our pier space, and they recognize that these are hollow words. Until there is substantive capability and capacity to operate in the Arctic. Uh, we sent the Polish star up there this year because the Healy broke down on their scientific mission. So the Polar Star had to come in and, and finish up that work as we only have one heavy and one medium icebreaker in, in our inventory today. Healy operates exclusively in the Arctic doing preliminary, primarily scientific research. Um, National Science Foundation, NOAA, and, and other sponsors as well. Um, so that's how the Polar Star ended up there. Uh, and at the same time, to give those sailors time in the ice so we don't lose this skill set because only a small fraction of our Coast Guard men and women have the opportunity to serve in these you know very very harsh environments uh, you know I've been a pretty much a warm weather sailor uh, never had to break ice but you're breaking ice you're basically in collision mode you know 24 by 7. I'm going to give you all the money in the world, and I'm going to give you all the shipbuilding capacity in the world, Admiral. What does your ideal inventory look like, not just to conduct the operations that we need to in the Arctic, but to, to deter 
our potential adversaries in that part of the world effectively too. And not just inventory. You mentioned the bases. We have one, Russia has 18. Do we need 18? Or do we need to construct uh, an alliance with the nations that you mentioned or whatever? Take me through what that ideal response looks like, posture looks like from a United States perspective. Yeah. Um, well, first we need a deep water port in the Arctic. Um, and, and there are several studies that are out there right now. Um, Kotzebue is, is, a, is a primary candidate. Uh, port Clarence, Alaska, um, a natural deep water port, but there's no uh, there's no land access, so it, it becomes almost an isolated base. Um, but what you first need is a, a deep water port to support logistics, to su- su- support presence. Otherwise, you're you're up there, and then you have to transit a thousand miles down to Dutch Harbor to reprovision, refuel, um, and then go back on on watch again. Um, and then it comes down to the, the platforms themselves. Um, you know, we use the term icebreakers, and, and I like the term that the current commandant, uh, Admiral Carl Schultz, calling these polar security cutters. That they just don't break ice. Um, that they're there to provide domain awareness. They're there to provide enforcement. Um, they're there to provide military presence, which means uh, you reserve what we call space, weight, and power so if you have to put um, you know, armed weapon systems on these ships, you have the means to do so. Um, and probably you want to, you know, you know, rather than say, well, this will be, we'll put it on the shelf and, and after the fact, we'll figure out what's this. We need to actually, you know, field this and, and, and trial and, and put this through its trial, sea trials and not just have it as a concept, but actually make those investments because it's much different operating in the Arctic in extreme cold, uh, even with hydraulic systems, uh, ventilation systems, it's challenging. Um, Then you need to look at the platforms itself. The program of record for the Coast Guard was three heavy and three medium icebreakers. Um, I would would see it as a a cost-effective process to have one class of ship a heavy icebreaker, and probably you want more than three. Uh, but whenever you build a lead ship, you have to go through, you know, it's it's a new design. And, and quite honestly, we haven't built a heavy icebreaker in the United States since the early 70s. Um, and, and so that technology, you know, in the shipyards itself is, is on a learning curve as well. Uh, we're using Azipod, propulsion technology from the fin from Finland. And, and so those will be strapped onto these ships, which is much more effective than the systems we have right now. But the reason I would say one ship, it's much easier for configuration management. Because I'm thinking 30 years down the road, now you're trying to you know, sustain two different classes of ships, maybe with unique systems on there that are not interchangeable and then that supply line runs dry, and, you're, and now you've got two ships that you have to, or three of each class, and now you find yourself cannibalizing one to keep the others going. Much better to have one design, and it's easier for the crew, you know, for the engineers, you know, to know one system, um, and, and rather trying to familiarize themselves with, with two different types of configuration. And quite honestly, it would probably be no more expensive to build a fourth heavy icebreaker 
and probably even less costly than it would to be the first medium. And what you want to do is fix price contracting um, and, and lock that in to get a competitive bid on that um, and, and move forward. But I would say a minimum inventory of four heavy icebreakers and stick with heavy icebreakers, um, you know, for their endurance um, and for the capability of, of arming those with, with a wide suite of opportunities. Um, and some of that might mean it becomes a platform for autonomous vehicles uh, in the air and in the water as well. Um, so I think, you know, how do you integrate autonomous systems, um, you know, with this platform? Because that's clearly the way that modern warfare is moving in that direction. Um, the next big piece that you need up there is um, broadband connectivity. Uh, once you get much further north than 72 degrees north, uh, you, you start hitting a dead zone. Uh, we don't have the investments in satellite technology in the very high latitudes like we do in the mid latitudes. So exchanging real-time information, um, which would include expanding our domain awareness, um, is constrained by the fact that we don't have that C4 ISR capability in, in those very high latitudes. So, so it really comes down to a deep water port, um, a, a one design um, that allows you to expand that program of record. Um, keep that program hot. Um, we're building patrol boats right now, and that program of record was supposed to expire, and then the Navy said, no, we need these ships in, in Bahrain. Um, in the Mideast. So we're building six more. The product line is hot. Um, the Navy's paying for them, and they're getting a very good deal on it. Um, so I think once we start this product line, uh, it leaves that option open um, where we can build. Do we need four? Do you need five? Do you need six? Um, but right now, I would say a minimum of four. Um, and, and best case, it would take at least until 2030 to build four heavy icebreakers. And that would be putting this on, on a very rapid uh, construction timeline. Uh, by 2035, you could have six. Uh, but that's where I would start is uh, one design type, arm it, and, and do that proof of concept, uh, and be fully transparent to let Russia know, hey, we are back. Then the final piece of that is leverage the partnerships that we have with our allies. Um, Canada is uh, launching the Harry DeWolf frigate class. Um, these are ice-capable frigates. So we talk about, you know, does the United States need to have a ice-capable Arleigh Burke, um, an ice-capable national security cutter? Maybe we do, but let's leverage some of our, our partnerships, our alliances. Um, and the same with, with Denmark and with Norway. Um, and our other Arctic partners as well. Um, and within that, you know, as much as we don't want to see the Arctic becoming the next battle space, we don't get to vote on that. Russia has already cast a ballot, and, and they, they are saying, I dare you. Um, and we can't overlook China. You know, China is building another icebreaker. Um, where are they spending money? Um, they about... 12% of the GDP in Greenland comes from China. Um, the biggest LNG producer in Russia, Navitek, 50% of that is owned by China. 
um, in Iceland, about six, seven percent of their GDP funded by China. So China, they're looking at this as the polar silk road. Um, and so, you know, we, we can't turn a blind eye to, to China. But where we do have the advantage, we, the United States, is in our partnerships and in our alliances. Uh, we often look at, well, what's the cost of these alliances um, and overlook the opportunity. Now, we wouldn't have foreign bases without our without our alliances. So, um, so I think don't go it alone in the Arctic. Admiral Paul Zukuft is a retired uh, commandant of the Coast Guard. Admiral, there's a couple of pieces in there uh, I want to go back to. You talked about our allies and the equipment in particular that Canada is uh, has in process. Is there a platform, Maybe and maybe it's the one that we're building, the, the icebreaker that's under construction now, is there an ideal platform that might give us an advantage over that timeline that you laid out there, the 2030 to 2035 window, or is that fixed just because of the nature of building a ship of the, the, of the capabilities and size and complexity of an icebreaker? Yeah, well, well first of all, these will be built in the United States. Um, there are other countries that could, could probably, you know, Finland has been building these, but not heavy icebreakers. Um, and so they, I've been over to their shipyards. Um, I, I've seen their Azipod construction. Uh, um, but if we're going to build these in the U.S., I, I think we are on as fast a timeline as we can get. Uh, if you go back to the mid-50s, um, we had over 40 shipyards in the United States that can build deep water ships. We have five today, five shipyards that can build deep water ships. Um, so we, we have lost that, that, that technical capacity, if you will, you know, in our shipyards. Um, and we'll lose even more if the Jones Act, if God forbid that's repealed, um, in shipyards like Nasco and San Diego, Philadelphia shipyard, those may very well shut down. Um, and then who's going to build our ships? Yeah. Yeah. Korea builds good ships, but what if there's a, a dust up over there? Um, meanwhile, we, we have we have timed out all of that skill set here in the United States. You can't just throw a switch and bring it back into production again. Um, so that's a challenge that we have right now. It's just the capacity of shipbuilding in the United States um, pales in comparison. I mean, you know, World War II, livery ships were tur- being turned out on a daily basis. Um, you know, we don't have that capacity here in the United States today. Another question based on what you were talking about, about equipment earlier. What's the level of interaction with the Navy and the Coast Guard in the Arctic region, and what's appropriate there, given, as you said, ideally we wouldn't militarize it, but we don't necessarily get to pick. Russia's decided already it wants to do it. It strikes me that China's headed in the same direction. Yeah, our Navy has been doing exercises in the the Arctic. Uh, They did one a couple of years ago. Um, also found out it was a pretty harsh operating environment. One of the ships uh, suffered some storm-related damage and, and had to return to port because of that. Uh, but one, if, if this does become ice-free and uh, a lot of expert climatologists predict that it's just a question of when and not if, and it could be sometime in the 2030s, well, then it's game on for the Navy. Um, rather than reconfigure ships and make them ice capable. But if there is now open water, then 
there's clearly a, an opportunity to do combined operations with allied partners, joint operations with, with the U.S. Coast Guard on the surface, that is. Um, and certainly let's not leave out the air component there as well. Um, so, so I do see a burgeoning role for the Navy. Uh, the Navy has now signed out on an Arctic strategy as well. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the first step in that strategy is, is probably 10 years out. Um, there's not, a, with, with the competing needs of the Navy, reconstituting the Ohio-class submarines, for one, um, you know, makes this a secondary priority for the Navy today. And, and, and I don't argue that whatsoever. It needs to be a first priority for the United States Coast Guard. Admiral Zukov, you uh, mentioned your successor, Admiral Schultz, and he said this recently, uh, according to Business Insider, we've really got to build out a future fleet of icebreaker sailors as the Arctic becomes increasingly more an area of focus and becomes increasingly more accessible, both points that you and I have discussed here today. What should that future fleet of icebreaker sailors be able to do that maybe they can't do today or don't do as much of today as they will need to 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and so on. What's the capability that the Guard needs to build now to be ready for the Arctic the way that we've discussed it today? What they need to be able to do is, is full-spectrum operations, Francis. So when the polar star goes down to Antarctica, it, it breaks ice and it reprovisions our station in McMurdo. It's a logistics ship. Um, they don't do they don't do law enforcement. They don't do the full spectrum of Coast Guard operations. And it's not a whole lot different when the Healy, our medium icebreaker, goes up to the Arctic. Um, it becomes a scientific research platform, and our sailors there are supporting scientists, but they're they're pretty much a platform supporting science um, and not getting after uh, contested claims if there are fishery illicit fisheries or what we call IUU, illegal, underreported uh, fisheries taking place, um, they're not up there to do those operations. So the, the, the crews need to be able to do what I would say full spectrum operations. Um, and, and a part of that, we're members of the intelligence community, is exploiting signals intelligence in, in this domain as well to include, you know, to enhance our awareness of what is happening in the Arctic. And that's what the sailors of the Arctic uh, need to be prepared to do in the 21st century. It's not what they've been trained to do in the 20th century. Um, and that's when both of these ships, Polar Star and the Healy, um, came into service. It strikes me that if that does become the mission of those ships and the mission of those guardsmen, that's another good argument for creating one class of vessel rather than having two different classes because then whatever the need is whatever ships available can go there and do everything in that full spectrum of operations is that a fair observation you think yeah it is and then you know the question is you know do we need to be up there you know 24 by 7 um we don't have a good sense of you know what happens in the in the Arctic nights or the Antarctic nights when you've got 120 consecutive days of darkness, frigid cold, icing conditions. Not much is happening up there as far as we know right now. So do you need a ship up there in the dark, um, you know, 
and that would drive how many ships you need. Um, we normally say it takes three ships to make one. If you need a ship on station, you know, 24 hours a day, year round, takes three to make one. Um, but maybe you don't need that, which is why, you know, if presence is everything. But let's not lose sight of the fact that we have to take ships offline. They have to go into maintenance, into shipyards. Um, so don't cut yourself short on that. Um, but that should drive to an optimum number. We've done a number of high latitude studies that said three and three, you know, three medium, three heavy. Uh, I, I think it's time to change that narrative um, and go with one class of ships. Um, you know, it makes it much easier for crew readiness if they only have to train on one ship. If you cross deck, and we see it right now when we have been on multiple ships, um, and, and you get on one class of ship, and you know your your chiefs, your senior enlisted members, are, oh, I haven't seen this engineering plant before, and, and you know they're no more familiar than your junior most people coming on board. That should never happen. Um, so, I think there are there are readiness returns on investment and, and real money savings return on investment by looking at a, a single design um, and expanding that program of record. Final thought, another quote from this Business Insider story. Crews have stripped replacement parts from the Polar Star's out-of-service sister ship Polar Sea. We've talked about that in the course of this conversation. And even turned to eBay to find a resistor unavailable elsewhere. Um, how do we build this next generation of icebreakers to make sure that if for some godforsaken reason folks are having this conversation after us 40, 50 years from now, that guardsmen of the future are not scrounging for parts on eBay or whatever succeeds it, that these parts can stay available. What's the key is in the acquisition process, in the design process, in the building process or whatever to try to avoid that problem at some point in the future? Yeah. Um, hard to say where circuitry is going to go in, into the future. I mean, right now, automobiles are delayed because there aren't enough chips to, you know, to keep that product line up and running. But when it comes to hardware, first thing I would look at is, you know, you know 3D construction. Um, and if you need a part, you know, you carry a 3D printer on board and you can make the part, you know, on the ship. You don't have to go to eBay and say, hey, we can manufacture this part right here. Um, so I think there's some some synergies to be had with you know 3D technology where you can manufacture it itself. In order to do so, uh, we need to be released from any proprietary interests from a contractor. So if you're going to acquire their product, um, it also gives us the wherewithal. So it isn't a sole source um, to support national security and, and, and they don't see a profit incentive to maintain that inventory. And now you're back to eBay again. Mm. Uh, that, that's just ridiculous. Um, so I would look at, you know, what can we do? One, release ourselves from any proprietary ownership um, that would give us the wherewithal um, to, to, you know, manufacture and, and stock the spares we need um, to keep these platforms in operation. Admiral Paul Zukov, U.S. Coast Guard, retired, former commandant of that service. Thank you very much for your time today. A wonderful conversation. Love talking to you. All right, Francis. You as well. I'm Francis Rose, the host of Four Star Forum. Next week, General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force retired, is my guest. 
He'll look at what the Air Force needs inventory-wise to defend the nation in the years and the decades to come. You can subscribe to get this show every week, anywhere you get your shows. Until next week, thanks for listening to Four Star Forum.